Welcome to the Long Thread Podcast about spinning, stitching, and weaving by hand. The podcast is presented by Long Thread Media, publishers of Handwoven, Piecework, Spinoff, and Little Looms magazines. Find us online at longthreadmedia.com. I'm your host, co-founder Anne Merrow. This season is sponsored by Webs. Webs, America's yarn store, is your source for everything you need for your next weaving project. Webs carries a wide selection of yarns, looms, tools, and accessories, and you can save up to 25% every day with the Webs discount. Visit yarn.com for more info. Cassie Dixon is a traditional textile artist who works in spinning, embroidery, weaving, natural dyeing, growing flax, even basketry. We spoke about her passion for traditional American crafts and coverlets and weaving silk and how a passion for making can turn even the most challenging time-intensive crafts into joy instead of work. Thank you so much for being here. I know that you have so much going on right now. Oh, thank you, Anne. Thank you for inviting me. Now, you do something very unusual among textile artists now. Even the most dedicated textile artists, most people don't grow their own fiber. Some people spin it, some people weave it, but you actually start at the very beginning. I do. I I think I love the process as much as I love the creating. I mean, it's just that whole thing is starting from scratch and going all the way through Everything. I do that in silk. I do it in flax. I, I love to research and really get the tools that are needed. And that's, it's, that is so much uh, fun for me. It's just very enjoyable. Is there a period of time that you particularly look back to? Um, I would say my grandmother, uh, when I was a young girl, I was just the type of child that loved to create, loved to make things. And my grandmother was very creative. She taught me to sew. She always had a handicraft, a handcraft project going like knitting or embroidery work and uh, crocheting. And so I started just learning all that. She would teach me and I would You know, I would want to work with her on the weekends when I came to visit and we would make things. And I was crocheting blankets and just, you know, just having something to do in college. Um, I learned to embroidery. I think Williamsburg uh, came out with these uh, stamped samplers. They were reproduction linen samplers. And my grandmother got me a sampler to work on uh, for embroidery. And she did a cruel work linen bedspread. So on weekends, when I was in college, we would do embroidery work. And then I went off uh, to school out west. I'm from Mississippi originally. And I met a lady uh, and her uh, a young girl that was in school with me. And she took me home one weekend to visit her parents. And and her mother was a spinner and she had a spinning wheel and was washing a fleece. And so that whole weekend, that's what I did. I washed a fleece. I ordered my first little Ashford spinning wheel in a kit and I started spinning. I really never thought I'd be a weaver, you know, but one thing always leads to the next. I got in, interested in natural dyeing and then I saw somebody weaving and I, I went from there and I just for fibers, I started collecting, you know, tools along the way. 
and there are certainly people who who spin wool and and wash their their fleeces but you pick the hard ones you have to actually raise the silkworms and grow the flax i do you know uh talking about silkworms well i'll tell you about silkworms first I think I read an article in Spinoff. Of course, I've been I've taken Spinoff and Handwoven Magazine since they came, started, and um, I read an article in Spinoff about a lady in Sacramento, California, um, Nancy Simpson, and she was raising silkworms. And I wrote to her. There was an address, and I wrote to her, and she sent me some eggs. And I was so curious. I mean, I I wanted to go through the whole process. Well, that was 32 years ago, I believe. And I'm still raising silkworms. And I love processing the silk. And I love showing kids about silk and where it comes from. And I have a silk reeler. And I use it in embroidery. I use it in knitting. Um, I teach classes with it and let people experience. Uh, I do. A, I did a class for years at John C. Campbell Folk School called Flax and Silk and the Shakers. And the Shakers were a religious sect and that had uh, Pleasant Hill, Kentucky was one place where the Shakers lived. And I've toured that and the, their museum and seen their, their silk, that they raised silkworms and flax and processed it uh, for cloth. And it's just fascinating. It's just a habit I can't seem to break. Every year I raise silkworms at a certain time. And flax, I've always, um, I guess being from Mississippi, it's hot, you know, and our winters are kind of mild. And so everybody was spinning wool. And I was so interested in linen and the linen samplers I was doing. I thought that I would really look into spinning flax. And there was a company in California, Straw and the Gold, that I would get some flax strips from. And I was spinning, spinning flax and doing demos at, you know, at festivals and everything. And everybody was always so curious. And then one thing leads to the next. I met uh, Dale Lyles and she got me interested in growing flax. Dale is, uh, was from Nashville, Tennessee. Her husband, Jim Lyles was also a mentor for me. Uh, he wrote the book, The Art and Craft of Natural Dying. And Dale was my flax grandmother, you know. And she taught me about growing flax. And then over the years, I've just started collecting old hackles and tools, a lot of them in the seven, uh, dated 1700s. And I use them in the processing. And right now, flax is a... Uh, of, of interest to a lot of people. There's all over the world. They are, look, you know, spinning flax and processing it to make linen cloth. So it seems like you have a real passion for history, for the shakers and for these old techniques and tools. I do. I love researching. And I research um, Two of my, I'm a coverlet weaver, and that is uh, the coverlets were woven, you know, late 1700s, early 1800s. And then after the craft revival, it went on into present day, really, a rebirth of it in the early 1900s. And two of my, I guess, my favorite research books is um, Of Coverlets, written by 
uh, Wilson and Kennedy uh, from Tennessee. It was a study of coverlets in that were woven in Tennessee. And that is my cherished book that I use. I use all the time. And uh, the Burnham and Burnham book, Keep Me Warm One Night, uh, which is uh, a, a Canadian study of textiles, coverlets and textiles. But a lot of those are linen, you know, and linen uh, warps and wool wefts are, you know, everything that was before 1850. And, you know, and really people did linen uh, until they invented the cotton gin and the spinning jenny. I mean, that was what you used. It was so hard to get the seeds out of cotton. So most households all over the world uh, grew flax and, and processed uh, their linen, and then life gets easier. People quit doing the hard stuff. There seems to be something really special about those coverlets. My parents had a copy of Keep Me Warm One Night. I think I don't know where it is, unfortunately, but there's something really special about them. And when you look at them, they're so visually striking. How many of them do you think you've made? Well, I've made at least, I've made over 40. Um, and I, I did not weave professionally for, I mean, I tried doing that, but you know, in the 70s, you either had to go to a festival and and really there was nothing like Etsy or, you know, you had to join a guild and and put your things in a guild or go to a festival. And I was, um, I had majored in education and I knew I loved working with students, with kids. And I've really, over the years, combined two careers. I've always been a member of a guild. Now I'm a member of the Southern Highlands Guild. And I I juried in as a uh, heritage member, which that's what the guild was founded on, was coverlets, a a beautiful double bow knot coverlet in the early 1900s that was was given as a gift to Francis Goodrich. And that kind of really started the Southern Highlands Guild and you know, uh, the whole craft revival that was part of the craft revival period and and not letting all these wonderful arts and crafts uh, just be put in a closet, you know, and, and not to be seen again. I tell people all the time that um, I love weaving coverlets and weaving the overshot and I do summer and winter, but I, I do it because I just, it's, I want people to know about it. I think there will always be somebody that will want to carry on that tradition that has an interest. The geometric designs are incredible. And it's, it's just a love of, of um, making something that was not only a functional item, but it was a, a thing of beauty and to be proud of. People would take photographs of their families with, you know, with that coverlet hanging in the background. They would keep them in cedar chest and pass them on to the next generation and say, my grandmother wove this or my great-grandmother. And, I, you know, I love being a part of that heritage. I really do. It means a whole lot to me. There's such a strong connection with textile heritage and with, with making in the Appalachians, that part of the country that you're from. There's a lot of textile connection there. Oh, it is. It is. I'm always learning. Or I've, I've recently, well, in the past maybe five years, I've discovered the National Museum of the American Coverlet in Bedford, Pennsylvania. And I go there now every year and speak. 
And I see these textiles and it's not just there, but I, I bring to them Appalachia and I tell them stories of the Appalachian weavers. And Barbara Miller, she and Deb Shiloh uh, wrote, the Francis Goodrich wrote the Brown Book of Weaving. It was her collection of drafts and of these weavers in Appalachia in the mountains during the craft revival. And Barbara and, and Deb put together these two books, one's on counterpanes and one are on coverlets, and, and some of the history of the local weavers in the area. And, and those stories, thank goodness, aren't lost. They're also in the uh, coverlets book because when they took photos of these coverlets, they also asked people to bring in a coverlet that was your family's, also bring in a picture of the people who wove it, and a little bit about their history, and they wrote about it. And I try to, to give people more information to the public. I love to go out and talk to about, about these weavers and how incredible their crafts were and what they did, the things of beauty that they created. And um, I, I feel real fortunate to be kind of like an ambassador or, you know, to go out and, and tell the stories something I love doing. And that craft revival is part of what started schools like John C. Campbell. Is that right? It sure did. Yes. Um, Penland School of Weaving, Lucy Morgan uh, was instrumental in starting that school. And uh, John C. Campbell Folk School, Aramont uh, School of Arts and Crafts, uh, Berea College, Farside Industries. Those were all key players in the craft revival and uh, the settlement schools that, that were teaching the old crafts, bringing in people, whether they were spoon carvers, basket makers, all of those old-timey crafts that people did. That was um, the heritage. And, and Josie Campbell, I teach there every year, and it's they promote a lot of those those old-time crafts, you know, whether it's blacksmithing and basketry, spinning and weaving, natural dyeing, a lot of the old-time crafts, that they keep that going. And there's a lot of interest always, in, I mean, all over the world. And I love that. I was going to say, sometimes it seems like we're having our own craft revival, but then there have always been people who have kept it going. Always, always. There's, it seems like there's always an interest, and I think there really always will be. Even though the kids, you know, today you think, well, they won't get off their phones. But I don't know. It's like uh, when I talk to them and, and they see it and they touch it, there's always a child like me that loves to create something. And they may combine two careers like I did, you know, working with students, working with kids, teaching, but also sharing their love of their craft. So I've been thinking a lot about natural dyeing lately, and that's something else that's very much rooted in where you lived. Is that something that connects you with um, the Appalachian region and your craft area? Well, if you went to my house right now, I've got the huge pot. I was taking yarn out of the pot this morning. I've got broom sage cut that is drying, ready to be put up. I've got walnuts put up. Uh, I'll, I'll freeze some, I'll dry some, I'll dye with some right now. This, these next two months before the weather gets really cold, 
I will just have a dye pot going every day outside and dyeing as much wool as I can. And I don't dye every single thing. Well, I'm getting where I dye every single thing that I make, but I don't necessarily natural dye every single thing I make. But I dye a lot. I always have a dye pot going. And I dye my embroidery threads for my projects. And I enjoy doing that, especially with silk and linen. And it's it's just something I love doing. I love having the dye pot going and creating color. I saw some beautiful pockets that you made recently. Oh, I know. I love colonial pockets. I did one with my silk. Um, I use my Instagram account as really my webpage. And it's really a sharing. You know, people will ask me questions and I, I just share and I post what I make. I'm not selling anything. I just love to make things and love to show somebody that may have an interest and want to do something similar. And I think that Instagram, it gives you um, just a way to connect with people all over the world that have similar interests. And I, I, I enjoy it. I love making the pockets. I'll tell you a, a little story. I did a flax symposium in 2016 in Deerfield, Massachusetts. And I went up there and I was doing this symposium and I was touring the museum and I found out about Deerfield embroidery. And it's a fantastic story about these ladies in the late 1800s that they created the, the Blue and White Society of Needlework. And what they did was they had researched a, some embroidery work done by six, seven women a hundred years before in the 1700s. But the wool was all moth-eaten. And so it was in the museum and they decided, why don't we recreate what they did? But instead of using wool, we will natural dye our linen. We'll do indigo. They did indigo first. It was blue and white. So they dyed, they did linen on linen and they did the, this Deerfield embroidery work and they made pockets. They made all types of pockets. They made doilies. That was real popular at the time people would put doilies under things in their on their tables and so for 30 years they had the blue and white needlework society and eventually they kept adding to it and using all types of natural dyes in their flowers but when I saw that I had to learn it I had to do linen and I taught a class on Deerfield embroidery at Johnson Campbell Linen on linen and shades of blue. Anything I can do with flax, I love doing. And so I did a flax to linen process, and then we natural dyed the linen and did embroidery, did Deerfield embroidery. That is so neat. So coverlets, obviously, we are still using today, but colonial pockets are not really something that's much used these days. Well, no, but they're so beautiful. And I just think about women. Everybody needs a pocket. I mean, you've got to have a pocket. And now we do the strap pockets, you know, over our shoulder to put our cell phones in. Well, we could just go ahead and tie them onto the, our waist and do the same thing, right? <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Whenever I see somebody in a dress, 
if I compliment her on her dress, she'll half the time she'll say, thanks, it has pockets. <laughs> it has pockets. That's right. But those colonial pockets, I thought, are so beautiful. I have two on my page that I did, one in Deerfield embroidery and then one with my natural dyed silk. And, uh, and that was fun. Fun making it. I think people would be surprised at how much silk there was in early American textiles. How much, oh. how much people here raised silk? Yes, it goes back to the 1600s. And uh, King James I wanted the colonists to raise silkworms. hundred years later, I think Ben Franklin was saying, we need to raise silkworms. Silk is more valuable than gold. And then we had uh, three, at least three, religious sects that raised silkworms that were very successful at it. The Mormons, the Harmonists, the Shakers. Uh, produced beautiful silks and raised silkworms. And then I think the first silk mill in this country was uh, in Connecticut. It was um, Mansfield, Connecticut. And it was a the first silk mill. They produced beautiful silks. I mean, I think at one time there was as many, somewhere between 300 and 500 silk-producing mills or some, at some stage of it in the United States. But it all came down to it was so labor intensive raising the silkworms. There was problem with the trees, the mulberry trees, which is source of food for silkworms and uh, the reeling machines. They would have glitches, all kinds of things. And eventually it was just too expensive, in fact, to, um, to produce silk in this country. And then it went back overseas. And most of our silk comes from China. But silk is raised, silkworms are raised all over the world, India, and there's wild silkworms and there's domesticated like the Bombex mori, which I raise. The, people look and I, I'll tell them, well, I've got them trained. They don't get out of their trays. And they'll just laugh and I, and I look at them, I go, I'm serious. They don't get out of the trays. And I keep them on my dining room table. I mean, I'll, I'll, they'll be in my loom room. When it's silkworm time, I will raise, well, I've raised as many as a thousand, but a hundred is a hundred to 400 will keep you busy of feeding the worms, but they're a worm for a month and then they spin their cocoon. But when you think about the silk and the history of silk in our country, one silkworm will spin a filament, almost a mile long filament. It can be 500 yards to, you know, a mile long. And it may take a thousand worms to make one lady's blouse. So when you think about the, the amount of effort that goes into raising silkworms, I think one, a thousand worms will eat almost 50 pounds of food. And so you've got to feed them around the clock. They've got to be clean. But they feed them in open trays in these factories and, it's like I said, it's so labor intensive that nobody, you know, really could keep it up. So you have to spend a lot of time outdoors. You have to gather your dye stuff. You have to grow your flax and you have to get your mulberry. That's right. That's right. And, and uh, all during the winter, I'm, I'm redding flax. You know, I, I, do, I, I lay my flax out in the backyard and do I, I do ret my flax, which is a process of of uh, rotting the outer bark of the plant. And so I multitask. 
I'm redding flax outside in all times of the winter and this fall and the spring and uh, getting that ready for myself for processing the fibers, but also for classes. I get it ready to, to take to the folk school or wherever I'm teaching or doing a workshop for a guild. And uh, so, and yeah, and, and I've got all kinds of things in the freezer and I keep my silkworm eggs in the refrigerator. Uh, they, I put those out for next spring. So when people go for the lettuce bin, there's always a jar of silk eggs in there. <laughs> so this is absolutely part of part of every part of your life. It is. It is. And I've done it for, I mean, really since the 1970s, early 70s. I've carried this on. It's just a part of life. I mean, my kids always thought everybody raised silkworms and had looms and spinning wheels. So there's obviously sort of a rhythm to your year when it comes to what time things grow. But how do you decide what project to start next? Well, I'm going to tell you, I sometimes drive myself crazy. But right now, just to show you, I'll have probably 10 things going at once. I mean, I'm spinning um, a project with Berta Splax, which Spinoff did an article on Berta. Berta uh, lived in Austria. And at when the time she married, she was given a diary of flax, two chests full. One was, a, a, was linen cloth. And that was kind of like a, a wedding shower, a bridal shower in today's time. They gave linens, you know, everyday use for sheets and pillowcases and towels. And then in the other big chest was flax. It was flax to be spun into thread and it was full of flax. And so this lady, Christiane Sutherland, she was gifted this big box of flax and she said, what am I going to do with it? Well, she started sharing it with people all over the world. And it's, it's phenomenal because other spinners that had treasure chests, this flax was 80 years old in this chest. Some go back even further than that. But Christiane is now, all you have to do is write to her. Uh, she has a Facebook group. And she's, you know, giving this flax out to anybody that wants it. You pay the shipping and more and more people are donating these chest of flax to her. But I have, I'm spinning that. I have a redding process going on. I've got the dye plants. I've got three coverlets. The warp is on my loom right now on one loom. And I have an embroidery project going on. And a lot of times I will get up in the morning at 5.30, I'm a very early riser, and I will start embroidery. And I may embroidery for an hour or two early in the morning, and then I put that aside. And then if I'm going to start on a coverlet, I don't do anything else. I will do that for two weeks. I will weave that coverlet until it's completed. And then I will go back to natural dyeing or, you know, if it's a sunny day, I plan it around the week, What? what I'm going to do that week by the weather. But I have projects going on constantly. Spinning, uh, embroidery, weaving is what makes me happy. It sounds like a wonderful way to start your day with an hour or two of embroidery. Yep. And at night, I sometimes sit and just spin for an hour. Every, every night, I'll just sit when I have a few minutes. And eventually, the projects get done. Yes, stitch by stitch or yard by yard, they do. Right, 
That's exactly right. I love it. I've, I've been blessed my whole life with people crossing my path at the right time that were willing to share their knowledge. And I just, it's like little gifts that people give you, you know, and there's so, there's such a wealth of knowledge out there. And I've, I've listened to your podcast and I, I think about these weavers. I love hearing their stories of how they started and what they what they do. And it's, and a lot of them are my age, you know, they've been doing it for 40, 50 years. And we want to share that, share what we've learned and pass it on to this younger generation that's coming on and hope that they will carry on. You know, I was blessed with Dale and Jim Lyles and so many. Nona Ledbetter taught me to weave coverlets. I was in Vicksburg, Mississippi. And who do I meet? A friend of mine that had really influenced me about natural dyeing. She said, you ought to go talk to Nona Ledbetter. She's uh, in her 70s and she's a weaver and um, a traditional weaver. And I, I go there and I call her and she says, sure, come over. And she opened up a chest of her weaving and it was linens and handwoven linens and coverlets. And all I could say was, will you teach me? And she said, well, yeah, I'll be glad to. And her way of teaching, I mean, we sat around the kitchen table and we would just do math. And at night, there is so much math that goes into the making of a coverlet. You've got to figure your pattern, how, how many ends per inch, how is it going to fit together, where are you going to put your seams? and uh, how much yards you're going to put and the shrinkage amounts and just everything that you goes into the process of, of the weaving of a bedspread. And that's what we would do. We would sit around at night and just figure and do math. And then I would go home and put on for a coverlet. And my first coverlet, what did I do? I natural dyed it with indigo. I hand spun all the wool for it and then wove it into a coverlet. And with her guidance, helping me, showing me how to do scenes. And, you know, and it was really odd, too, that we were both doing the Williamsburg samplers. We were both loved embroidery. So we just, she was another grandmother that just crossed my path at the right time. I think Shay Pendre mentioned that she also started stitching with the Williamsburg sampler. And then she went on to have this long career as an embroiderer. Yes, she did. I heard her interview. And uh, I still have, I have my framed sampler and I still have a lot of the samplers that were the direction. And that's, I've done many samplers, but sometimes I've used some of the things that were in those old samplers, whether it was flowers or whatever, and I've made things for my mother on linen and, and done embroidery work like that. And now I, I love to natural dye my own threads and do it. It's wonderful. A lot of what you do probably sounds to people as though it's really hard. So a lot of us get questions like, oh, I don't have the patience for that, or that's too much work. How do you think about this work that takes a lot of effort, but is clearly very rewarding for you? I don't think of it as work, honestly. I, I guess if I had to produce something to sell, and I was just constantly doing orders. And honestly, I did that. I tried making a living with it, and I talked about that earlier. And I think the just the deadlines and knowing I had to pay my rent, and I had to get, you know, I, 
I just knew that I was taking the enjoyment out of what I, I can get sidetracked so easily. If something really fascinates me, I want to learn how to do it. And I don't care if it takes years, I'm going to learn how to do it. And I will just be persistent and persistent. And I know what I do seems complicated, but it's really, it's not if you love doing it. I mean, if, if you love working with your hands, whether you're knitting or whatever, you know, it's, it's not that it's complicated. It's just finding that love of doing something and making it. Um, I look at fabrics. I have all these spools that a friend of mine gave me. She was it. She's in her eighties, Barbara Miller. And she gave me just a bag of bags of linen. She goes, Cassie, these are just little bitty spools. Some don't have very much on them, but see if you can do something with them. And I said, well, if anything, I can use them for embroidery, but I, I'm natural dyeing all those little tiny spools of leftover threads and I'm weaving reproduction linen fabrics that were woven in the 1700s and 1800s and I'm going to make a quilt out of it. I'm just, you know, I said, well, I, this could be a fun talking thing when I take it to classes or something that this was a, a plaid fabric that was used you know, that was woven in this time. And it's natural dyed with broom sage and over dyed with indigo to get that green. And I love making things. To me, they're not, it's not hard. It's just, I think there's a lady, um, I always get tickled when I look at her Instagram. It's just do it is part of her Instagram title. And I go, yep, just do it, Cassie. Just pick something today and start on it. <laughs> How many different classes do you teach in a year? I don't teach that many. I have grandchildren and I, I have a lot of things going on. I'd usually teach at least one class at John C. Campbell Folk School. I speak at the National Museum of the American Coverlet every year and I do things for them. And uh, it's fa- I love that place. It's just wonderful. If everybody gets a chance, go on the website and look at coverletmuseum.org. It's in Bedford, Pennsylvania, if you ever have a chance to go by. And I'm a member of the Southern Highlands Guild. And I just let, yesterday I was sitting out front of the Civic Center spinning and talking to people. And uh, my friend Dee Dee Stiles, she was natural dying. And I was sitting there spinning and, and uh, for the craft fair of the Southern Highlands. So we were having a great time talking and meeting people. Boy, that's something I would love to go and visit, the craft fair of the Southern Highlands. Oh, it's wonderful, especially after COVID. Uh, It's not as large as it has been in the past, but we're coming back and more and more people are coming. So when you think about designing coverlets, where do you tend to draw your patterns from? Are they from all of these traditional books or do you sort of combine them your own way? Well, sometimes I do combine them my own way, but a lot of them I do. I'm, I weave for friends, for family. I've, I've sold some as well. And I usually let people look in my books and they pick a pattern that they like or they look through some of the, of the pieces I've woven and they, they go, I'd really like to have this piece hanging on a wall and I need it such and such width and length. And like, I want to weave this next one. I'd like to weave it for me, actually. It's a, um, I want to call it my Cherokee Indian basket. It's, it's a, a diamond twill pattern 
and I'm going to probably tweak it and make it look a little more like what I think of a Cherokee design. I live right by the Cherokee Indian Reservation. I just, I don't know. I just kind of, I make baskets as well. And <laughs> yeah, well, I do that too. Yeah, I do uh, Southeastern cane basketry. I love, I learned, it took me years to learn how to do that, to split river cane. But it was a thing I grew up with Choctaws um, watching the Native Americans uh, split cane in Mississippi by my grandmother's house. Uh, it was just something I always wanted to learn. And, and I found several of the ladies that taught me on the reservation how to, how to split cane. And not to sell. I just wanted to learn, just wanted to appreciate because I collect their baskets. So, so what's the next thing you want to learn? Uh, well, um, I don't know. Something just crosses my path. I, I say my famous statement that I say to myself constantly is not one more thing, Cassie. <laughs> <laughs> not one more thing. But something always seems to come along that just makes me, throws me a little curve and I want to understand it or, or to do it. Story of my life. But you speak about them with such great joy that makes other people want to do them too. So I ask because I'm excited to, f- to find out what I should want to learn next. <laughs> Good. Well, you just ask away and I'll be glad to help you. <laughs> I'll get you started. You know, I just, I like for people to just know that I really love sharing and it, and they're interested in a certain thing and they've got a question about how to do it. I usually refer them to a, a book in their library or an online resource or, you know, I pass on my knowledge. I don't mind doing that. I usually do it in my post. I do enjoy making and creating and sharing. Well, Cassie, thank you so much for your time. I'm inspired to go spend a little bit of time with my spinning wheel and some of my naturally dyed silk, although I did not raise it myself. That's okay. You don't have to. You don't have to. And I enjoyed it so much, Anne. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening to the Long Thread Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate the show and leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Thanks again.